It's so fun to be here. Great to be back here with you at Horizon. I'm a little uncomfortable being introduced as an author because when you speak, sometimes you think, well, they didn't hear it and it went away and it really doesn't go away. But, but when you're an author, you write it down and there it is. And this is an old guy, young guy book, this trip around the sun, but Mark's the old guy. I just thought I'd like to say that. Actually, he's the age of our children. And I've known Mark since 1994 when they moved to Washington, D.C., and ended up doing a church plant the next year and started out, and the, and the book talks about this. These are sort of two mini biographies. So I write the first half of the chapter, he writes the second half on the same theme. And uh, they started a, a church plant with 19 folks, and um, Ruth and I, who had done a church plant in 1966 at the University of Illinois, decided we'd go. These were young people in this church plant, 19 people, and we're two of them. And because when you do something and you're young, you need some old folks around just because. And, and they usually have more cash than you do. So that's why you need them <laughs> there. Might not be much, but it's more than you got when you're however old. And now that congregation, 18 years later or 19 years later, has seven locations in theaters in Washington, D.C. They have about 4,000 folks. The median age, one of the reasons I like going there, I get to go there half a dozen times a year. One of the reasons I like going there is that their median age is 28, and over half of them are single. So I get to go there to be recharged and all of that. But yeah, let's hear it for everybody under 25. Let's just hear it. Come on, let's, let's give them a hand. Everybody. Yeah. I, um, Mark has a tremendous capacity for taking profound things and putting them in single sentences, like Jesus loves us when we least expect it and least deserve it, things like that. So um, I'm honored to be an author with him. This is the mouse riding the elephant. He's, he's got the creds with regard to authoring things. and. Uh, the subtitle of the book is Turning Your Everyday Life into the Adventure of a Lifetime. It's a book about two guys and adventure with Jesus. That's essentially what it is. And I, as we wrote this, part of what I was thinking was, how, what makes life work? How does, what are the things that last? And, and how does it work? When I was 20 years old and in college, I got a call from a pastor in the Bay Area of California, Oakland, San Francisco area, saying we're doing a big gala event for high school graduates. Would you come and be the master of ceremonies? Well, I was honored by the call because I'm 20 years old and this is a big deal, but it made me nervous a little bit because I was a severe stutterer. So he's inviting the stutterer to be the master of ceremonies. So hold that thought for just a moment. A few weeks ago, the ESPY Awards were on television. Any of you guys know what the ESPY Awards are? ESPN gives them to sports leaders, and they gave an ESPY Award to a young woman who had died a couple of months before. She was 19 years old, her name was Lauren Hill, and they had discovered she had a brain tumor, inoperable, about a year before, and her dream was to play college basketball. And 
she lived long enough to play two games and scored some points, actually. And then she died, but she knew she was dying. And in the midst of her loss at age 19, she decided she wanted to help somebody. And so she raised over a million dollars to help research and combat this form of inoperative brain cancer. Those two stories have this in common. When the pastor called me and said, would you be master of ceremonies? And I'm thinking, even though I'm a stutterer, he gave me hope. And when Lauren Hill raised money for those who would come after her, she gave somebody else hope. Hope is something you get and something you give. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. First Corinthians 13th chapter is known as the love chapter. And I just want to read a few verses. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then, in that day, I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now we know that as the love chapter, okay? But there's a trilogy of virtues that are represented here for the journey. What, what is it that makes life work? Well, trust and love and hope, and love is sort of the all-encompassing thing, and these are all good. Nobody listens to faith, hope, and love and says, those are crummy, yeah, those are, that's no good. But these are things that make us fit make us healthy, and express health. And we talk quite a bit about love and faith in church, but I want to speak today, I want to focus today on hope. Let me tell you, first of all, what biblical hope is not. It's not luck or chance or going to Vegas. It's not a roll of the dice. That's not hope. It's not even wishful thinking. 60 years ago, this summer, Disneyland opened. Some of you are old enough to remember when Disneyland was a Wednesday evening television program on black and white TV, and they charted the building of Disneyland, the first theme park of it, really of its kind in this country. And there's a character in the Disney world called Jiminy Cricket. Anybody know Jiminy Cricket? I mean, no, you know, little Cricket comes out and he sings, when I wish upon a star. You know, that, that. But that's not biblical hope. It's not wishing upon a star. And I like Jiminy Cricket. I'm just telling you that's not <laughs> biblical hope, okay? It's not even optimism. It's not even, are you a glass half full or glass half empty person? I love the guy who said, we studied that for three days in philosophy class at the university. And I went home and I asked my granny, granny, is the glass half empty or half full? And she looked at the kid and said, Bobby, that depends on whether you're Drinking or pouring. Well, anyway, I just like to throw that in. The point is, that's not biblical hope. It's not just being, it's not just being optimistic. As much as I like optimistic people, so, and, and that's a wonderful thing. And I think people who are in Christ are optimistic, but that's not in and of itself hope. Listen to how Paul describes these three overlapping Olympic rings, if you will, of love, which is the larger piece, and trust and hope. 
1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, the third verse, reads this way, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your enduring and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is hope? Hope is confident expectation. Confident expectation. There's this Hebrew word, Ebenezer. It's an interesting word. The prophet Samuel is recorded back in 1 Samuel, the 7th chapter, 12 through 14th verses, as the people of Israel are establishing their place in this Palestinian area. It says, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far has the Lord helped us. That's what Ebenezer means. Up to this point, God has helped us. We need to remember that. It's called the stone of help, looking back to what God had done from where he had brought them. That's an Ebenezer. Hope going forward is based on looking backward at some level. When we did this church plant near the University of Illinois back in the 60s, church was growing and we had gotten to about 150 folks and we, we still had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night services. And sometimes on Sunday night we'd take song requests from the congregation, some had favorite songs. And we had a number of people who, were, who had grown up in mainline churches, that is sort of older liturgical churches, and they loved to sing the old hymns. And one of the hymns they liked to sing was, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And there's a line in there that says, here I raise my Ebenezer, that word, that Hebrew word. And a professor from the university, right in the middle of the song, was sitting right over here, like in the third row. He raised his hand and he said, excuse me, what in the world is an Ebenezer? And we got a chance to explain that it's this Hebrew idea that based on what has happened before, it gives you hope for the future. I have a friend who's with the Lord now, his name's Charlie White. He was chief of staff to a very powerful congressman in D.C. when we lived there. And Charlie came to the Lord at age 64 when he discovered that he had a serious cancer. He ended up dying within six months, but he had gone into hospice at his house, and I went to see him a few days before he passed away. He's a former Navy submarine captain, and he was this strapping guy, and now he's skeletal. And I walked into his room, and he was skeletal, but his spirit was just vibrating. I mean, he was just more alive than he'd ever been. And he looked at me, and he didn't know very much scripture, but we had talked about what happens when you die and this sort of thing. He said, Dick, read that passage to me again about absent from the body, present from the Lord. What does that mean? How does that work? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I said, Charlie, I I don't know how that works. I haven't done that part yet. So I don't know <laughs> how that works. But, but if it works like everything else that I've trusted Jesus in, it'll work. Because of this, I can trust him for this. Because of what he's done yesterday, I can trust him for my tomorrow. There's the old gospel song that says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, anything I construct, 
but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It's this piece that gives me that hope. He takes care of my history at the cross so I can have a future with him. That's how it works. All the other things you say, but I'm new. I'm, I'm ju I just started following Jesus. I don't, I don't have this history. I don't know how that all comes together. Well, you need to hang out with some old dudes. Have them tell you some stories. Because their faith helps you. Their experience helps you. That's why you, that's why you read missionary biographies. That's why I read missionary biographies, to see how God used people in the past to encourage me in the present and the future. Two years ago, Ruth and I had our 50th wedding anniversary and we had a big blowout. All the, all the kids came and we have 11 grandkids and so we're all in this house. It's pandemonium like for four days. <laughs> I mean, you got socks you've never seen before. You, I mean, it's, yeah, too much to talk about. But on Thursday of that week, they sent us off. They said, you gotta go away for three hours. We went away. Grandma and I. And when we came back, they did the first ever Foth Family Talent Show. They had lip sync karaoke. They had solo guitar players. They had, you know, basketball dribbling, all the talents. They were all on display. And they videotaped it all. And we said, you know, tonight we'd like to take 30 minutes and you videotaped something else in addition to this. I said, great. And so Ruth and I sat with the grandkids and with the four kids and their spouses. And we recounted 50 years of when God showed up. When we were struggling here, Jesus showed up in this moment. When we thought all was lost here, this is what happened. When, when we lost parents or when we did all these kinds of things and we said, we want you to videotape this as, as a legacy as well to, because we need to hear the old stories. Not because they're old stories, but because they're true stories. It isn't just my faith that encourages me to hope, it's your faith that encourages me to hope. So, hope is confident expectation. Secondly, it's necessary to life. It's necessary to life. Uh, a few weeks ago, actually, back in May, late May, I and our oldest daughter, Erica, and her youngest daughter, Hope, were in Amsterdam. And uh, Erica had found online a fella who's a former journalist who did a walking tour of Amsterdam, recounting the five years when the Nazis occupied Amsterdam from 1940 to 1945. So for three hours, we walked around and we saw houses, whole streets across canals that had been where Jews had lived. And the Nazis came out and deported them, took them, cleansed the population, if you will, took them to camps where they died. And the people who came back after the war, these houses were all boarded up, they bought them. But across the canal on this side, there were plaques across from each of the houses saying who was in that house when the Nazis came in 1940 and it would name them their age, 17 years old, what camp they went to and when they died as an ongoing memorial to their lives. But many of them were sent to Auschwitz in Poland where hundreds of thousands of people were gassed. Viktor Frankl, an Austrian psychiatrist, was also sent to Auschwitz. And he wrote about it years later 
in a couple of books, but he said in the camps, in those camps in World War II, when people lost hope, they died. This is a quote from him. The inner hold a prisoner has on his spiritual self relies on having a faith in the future. That's what hope is, a faith in the future. Once a prisoner loses that faith, he's doomed. It is a peculiarity of man that he can only live by looking to the future. If there's no tomorrow, I just give up. And story after story recounts people who gave up hope and they'd go and curl up in the fetal position over in that corner of the room and within 48 hours they'd be dead. Not because of malnourishment or starvation, although that precipitated a lot of deaths. But when we give up hope, we die. I love it that scripture says that hope isn't just a quality, it's a person. Point three, Colossians 1.25 and following reads like this, I've become its servant by the commission God gave me, this is Paul writing, to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and for generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the power of the kingdom. This is the mystery of the kingdom, that Christ is in you, and you express his hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's a fascinating phrase, because point four is that ultimately, you are united with that person who is hope. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, the letter to this church in northern Greece. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, i.e. die, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have died or fallen asleep in him. So what about now? That's good. Now it's going to be a great tomorrow, but what about now? How does hope work now? Hope is the fuel of our lives. Hope is the fuel of our lives. Emily Dickinson was sort of a reclusive poet, a woman who lived in Amherst, Massachusetts. Only 10 of her poems were published during her lifetime, but she captures metaphor. She creates pictures, and I love this one. She lived in the mid-1800s. She wrote a piece called Hope is a Thing with Feathers. Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Isaiah says it with more punch than that. This is how he says it. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary increases power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Hope generates out energy and power. It, it has a it has a, an energy field, if I can use that expression, about it that is magnetic. Isn't it great to be around people who are hopers, 
who are hopeful. There's something about their perspective on life that even though terrible things can happen, they can still have hope because they know how it comes out in the end. If I could take you to Washington, D.C., I'd take you to do the monuments at night. Stan's been there several times. We've done that. And um, one of my favorite places to take you, although there are some great ones. I mean, the Lincoln Memorial and the Vietnam Wall and all of that, and, uh, you know, just tremendous. But I'd take you across the street from the Vietnam Wall on Constitution Avenue behind a copse of trees, and there is a large bronze seated statue of a man in a rumpled sweater. He's got a big bushy mustache and crazy hair. Maybe that's why I like him. He's got hair. And uh, his name is Albert Einstein. And they have some of Einstein's quotes on the base of that area where he's seated. This is one of them, my favorite, I think. Imagination is more important than knowledge because, it's ha because it has no limits. Imagination is more important than knowledge because it has no limits. Hope is that way. This is hope unlimited. Hope has no edges, if you will. You can't circumscribe hope. It is trust looking forward. It is contagious. It's unlimited. When we get hope or we give hope, it's all good. And hope is God's design for us. He says these things all the way through scripture. Listen to how Jeremiah, Jeremiah's called a weeping prophet. He's the sad guy. Listen to what he says. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You say, what's God's plan for me? Well, his plan is to give you hope and a future. You say, well, how do I get at that? Well, you get at that through Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, let me just close. Let me wrap this up. You have to be careful because when Pentecostal preacher types say they're going to close, it's usually three times. This is just a one-time closer, okay? <laughs> have a couple of friends named Bob and Maria Goff. Bob Goff is a trial attorney in San Diego. He teaches nonprofit law at Pepperdine University in Southern California. He's written a book, some of you may have read it, called Love Does. I met Bob on a trip to Africa, to Uganda, some years ago when he was working on this sexual slavery issue and some other things. And it just like the most creative, one of the most, like the top five creative people I've ever met. He just thinks outside the box and he has this, he has this sense about him that is just fun. It's real and it's fun. I have three children at that time when I first met him, Adam, who was seven and and uh, Richard, who was nine, and Lindsay, who was 11. Adam has now just graduated Pepperdine University, and Richard and Lindsay are both married. But on 9-11, which is 14 years ago, but in some, in some places in my mind, it was just yesterday. I can, I can remember being at this dinner with some ambassadors and have some, or at a breakfast on that Tuesday morning, somebody running out of the kitchen saying something terrible has happened in New York City, and then being in the parking lot of that house, getting ready to find my way home and hearing a boom, and it was the plane flying into the Pentagon about a mile to the south of us. And so it's very real that way. Well, the Goffs had no television. Not that they couldn't, they, he's done very well as an attorney, so they could have had several televisions, 
But they had decided if anything big was going to happen in the world, they didn't want their kids seeing it on TV. They'd like to tell them. And so that day, they sat down with their children, 7, 9, and 11, and they said, this very difficult thing has happened. It's a hard thing. And uh, we think that the leaders of nations are the only ones who can solve this problem. Then Bob asked the kids, if we could spend five minutes with any world leader, what would you ask him or her for? Or what would you ask them? Not what, not, not, not what would you ask them for, what would you ask them? Adam, who is seven, the youngest, said, I'd ask them, could you come do a sleepover? <laughs> Richard, who was nine, and Bob says he's sort of pastoral, sort of an old soul, he said, what do you place your hope in? That's what he'd ask the leader. And Lindsay, who is 11, said, if you can't come to our house, can we visit yours? And I'll video your hope message and pass it on to other leaders. So the parents said, okay, why don't we write them? And so they went to the CIA website, I guess you can do this, and downloaded as much contact info information as possible for the leaders of 200 plus nations in the world. And they sent them letters from these three kids. They got a P.O. box in San Diego. I suppose so they couldn't be traced in case somebody didn't like them. <laughs> and the first response to a letter was no. And the second response was no. And the third response, they got 100 no's because they get, before they got one yes. And the first yes was from the leader of Bulgaria, and then Switzerland, and then Israel, and then a dictator in Malaysia, 29 in all. And they had made a commitment that whoever says yes, we'll go see him. So they got on a plane and went. And in Bulgaria, when they walked in, the president or the prime minister, whoever he was, they walked in, he said, you know, I've been more nervous for this meeting than if President Bush was coming to see me. <laughs> And he said, when I get nervous, I like to eat. He said, let's eat. And he goes, and the doors fly open, and these guys come in with trays of burgers and pizza and fries and all this kids kind of stuff. <laughs> then they were dining with one prince, I think in a Middle Eastern area or something, and, and he, Adam lost control of a meatball, and it flew across the table, and the prince trapped it. And he said, is this your version of that great American tradition, the food fight? <laughs> yeah. And the leader of Malaysia called and said, be here by next Wednesday. Well, they weren't ready. They had to sell a pickup truck to get the monies and go and all of that. One country's foreign minister invited them for Thanksgiving, not because it was their country's celebration, but because it was America's celebration, United States, and they wanted to honor the country. At the end of every visit, the children gave their host a little box with a present, a little gold box. They opened it up. There was a key to their house in San Diego saying, if you're ever in our neighborhood, We'd like you to come and stay at our house. In the next year, two leaders came and stayed at their house in San Diego. I texted Bob when I knew I was going to speak on this and said, where are the kids now? They said, Lindsay and Rich are married. Adam just graduated from Pepperdine. But all of them have gone back since that time to visit those leaders. And he said, just last week, they wrote 65 letters to some of those other leaders just to let them know they were thinking of them. Hope is something you get. Hope is something you give. Hope is something you are in Jesus. Bob Goff says it this way. We were just nobodies who wanted to bring hope. You needn't go somewhere as believers to plant a hook. Just go and plant 
your feet and there will be hope.